0: You are listening to sermon audio from Grace Community Church of Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net. It is is certainly true of the adage that a sermon is never done. And by that I mean, when you're preaching God's Word or in in a place where you're teaching God's Word, it seems like you're always always working on and trying to listen to the Holy Spirit as he guides and leads and directs you. And so I had how I wanted to start our time this morning in God's word all figured out and planned out till about 11 o'clock last night. And then I got a text from someone who has family who live in Texas and who have endured Hurricane Harvey and they sent me a picture and they sent me a story that I just wanna share with you this morning because it really does introduce where we're headed in God's word and what we're talking about this morning. So for those of our, our crew who are going to be podcasting this or listening to it on the web, they're not gonna be able to see this picture, but just by way of reminder, if you're ever gone from grace, you can access our sermons. They're uploaded by the end of the day on Sundays, and any pictures in PowerPoint that we include are posted to the web, so you can literally follow along with what you would be missing if you're not here. But with that being said, this was a house, until Hurricane Harvey came through this subdivision. And I want you to take note of um, the trailer in the back there, the, the, the work trailer and all the cars and trucks because that's necessary context for what I'm about to read you. This was texted to someone in our, in our church here last night and with their permission, I'm sharing it with you. And the person who sent this picture said, the pictures don't show all the people who are helping. It's mostly Texans helping Texans. There are so many people helping that we sometimes have to walk several blocks because there are so many trucks, cars, and trailers lining the streets. Watching Katrina and Sandy and even Hurricane Andrew in 1992, watching all that on TV just doesn't tell the story. When you are in it, it is absolutely overwhelming with no end in sight. And yet I was a little taken back by how many people have just started to show up and help. This morning, a couple showed up after driving three hours from their home just to go find someone to help. They were going to help for the day, and then they were going to eat their bologna sandwiches for dinner last night, and then they were going to sleep in their truck. Needless to say, they are now sleeping upstairs in our home after having fed them some fajitas for dinner. Please also pray for everyone to find a place to stay, including the insurance adjusters, some of whom are having to travel well over an hour away because all the area hotels are completely full. Now catch this. Tomorrow we will meet, which is today, tomorrow we will meet in front of that pile of trash for a very different kind of worship service. The church being the church. When we see community, we're drawn to it, community at its best. We recognize it and we we want in, we want to be a part of it. And the same is true of unity. When we see a group of people who come together and lay their differences aside for a greater goal, it speaks volumes and it crosses all sorts of divides and it is attractive and it is distinctive. With where Paul is going in this letter to the Philippians this morning, he is going to land very, very hard on this idea of unity. In fact, in the section that precedes what we're looking at today, he says this, whatever happens, did you catch that? Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Hmm, what's that mean? Well, when I Whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. If you and I want to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it absolutely matters how we do life together as a community in unity. Or to put it another way, do you want to live distinctly for Jesus then your relationships with the very people gathered around you here this morning, your relationships as a church will either draw people irresistibly to the gospel or they will be repelled by what they see by the divisions and divides between us. Or to put it another way, unity is not something that just happens. You don't bring a group of people together like us who are so very different as we'll look at in just a little while and have us live and do life together in unity. And yet that's one of the mysteries of the gospel is people who were so different coming together and being radically changed from the inside out by Jesus Christ and then doing life together living in right relationship with God and right relationship with one another and right relationship with those around them because of who Jesus is. But it doesn't just happen. Unity takes work. It has to be practiced. It has to be preserved. It has to be promoted. It has to be protected. And I'm running out of P words to describe it. But it doesn't just happen. And in this passage, Paul is going to call out the heavy artillery to make his point. He is going to appeal to their relationship with Jesus. He's going to appeal to the gospel. He is going to make a personal appeal based on his relationship with them to call them to live as the church, in unity. He will give the basis for unity, a command for unity, and then where we will spend most of our time this morning, the actual practice of unity, what does it look like? Well, welcome to Philippians chapter two, verses one through 11. We'll look at the first five verses here this morning, and then next week we'll circle back around and do the the verses um, in the rest of the passage. But let's look at the whole thing as a unity as I read this to you. Because it's one flow of thought. So this is where Paul starts. Therefore, if you have any encouragement for being united with Christ, if you have any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but rather in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And we'll look at the rest of this here next week, but he goes on to say, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Will that be a cool day when that happens, right? And that is gonna happen. That is reality. But all that is set against This background, this idea, this value, this principle, this reality of unity. And look how this starts. All these ifs, right? But it's really important for us to understand that those of you who are grammarians will appreciate this. These are conditional clauses, which means they're not really ifs. They're not possibilities, are certainties. You can substitute the word because or since in each of the, each of these and that gives you the flavor of what he's saying. Because you have encouragement from being united with Christ, because you're comforted by his love, because you share in the spirit, because you have tenderness and compassion. But let's really look at the basis of his appeal here. What is he really calling them to? And what is he calling them to remember? Which, by the way, you constantly see throughout the scope of Scripture, Old Testament to New, God is always calling His people to remember. Always, always, always. Because we forget. Because we have short memories. Because we're short sighted. Because we lose perspective. So, what does He call them to? What does He call them to remember? The gospel. Do you have any encouragement for being united with Christ? Do you? For those of you who know Jesus, what was your life like before Jesus? What would you be doing with your life now without him in your life? What kind of person would you be? What would you be lacking? What is it that Jesus has given to you? And this is the necessary practice that we need to to, to put into practice on a constant basis and that is preaching the gospel to ourselves, remembering what do we have in Jesus? Because it's so easy to lose sight of that. And then he goes on to say that we share in the Holy Spirit. Do we appreciate, do we realize that this means you are never alone? And this will be put to test in your life you will go through seasons of your life where it feels like no one understands, no one gets it, no one's there for you. But the spirit of Jesus is. He understands. He gets it. You're never alone. I, I, it is etched in my memory, I will never forget talking to a widow who had just lost her husband. They had been married over 60 years. I just, I can't, I can't imagine that magnitude of loss. And a number of you have walked a path similar to that. Or you've lost someone in your life, but I'll never forget her looking me in the eye and saying, Pastor Jay, I am lonely, but I am never alone because I have Jesus. That's exactly what Paul is talking about here. You share in the Holy Spirit. God has shown you tenderness and compassion. Exodus 34, where God self-describes what he's like and who he is. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God is the first thing he says. Did you deserve God's grace? Did I? Did God invite me into his kingdom because of my resume? Because he is so lucky I'm on his team? Uh, yeah, no. All of us start out in the same place. All of us, we all start out broken and separated from God. It is not about what you do that determines if you enter the kingdom of God. It's about if you receive what God has done for you that determines if you enter the kingdom of God. It has nothing to do with what you do. It has everything to do with how you respond to what's been done for you through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and by the way that's not because you earned it that's because this amazing God had compassion on you and me seeing us in our brokenness and he rescues us from that does that have any impact on your life do we get the significance of what Paul's saying here does any of that matter to you and of course the natural answer is for any of us who know and love Jesus yeah all that matters to me So then what does he go on to say? Then make my joy complete. And so now he he gives the command for unity. But look at how he does it. He makes a personal appeal here. Make my joy complete. If they truly love Paul, if they truly feel for Paul the way he feels for them, is there any of them who are going to read this or hear this read in their presence and say, yeah, nah, I'm not going to make Paul's joy complete. Of course they are. He's making a personal appeal. You make these kinds of appeals all the time in your relationships. Have you not gone to someone in your family, in relationship with you at some point and said, you know, I know you don't want to do this or I know you, will you give me the benefit of that? Will you do this for me? You ever done that? Honey, I know you don't want to mow the lawn. Will you do this for me? Right? We do this all the time. And Paul appeals to them personally. Make my joy complete. Okay, Paul, we get it. This is really important, and it is. It's profoundly important. And this is what he calls them, to have the same love. Be one in spirit, one in mind. This is, this is a command for Unity. And I think part of the significance and the power and the passion of his appeal is because there is a threat to unity for every church that chooses to love and follow Jesus Christ. And believe it or not, I personally believe that threat, that greatest threat, is not from the outside, it comes from within, And I think it's captured in a quote that I ran across recently by a theologian, a Jesus follower, a philosopher. He has a number of amazing quotes. His name is G.K. Chesterton. And G.K. Chesterton, am I saying his name right? Chesterton, there we go, G.K. Chesterton. In 1908, the London Times ran an article it was the, really the beginnings of World War I, and it was carnage on a scale that we had never seen in human history. By way of example, in the Vietnam War and the Korean War, about 50,000 died, I think. At least in the Korean War, that's true. I think there were 50,000 casualties in Vietnam. There were more people who were killed in the battles of World War I than were lost in those entire wars. It was carnage like the world had never seen before. And so the London Times in 1908 ran this article that said, what is wrong with the world? And invited people to write in. And this is what G.K. Chesterton did. He wrote this to them and said, what's wrong with the world? Dear sirs, I am. Sincerely. And then he signed his name. Because we have this brokenness that we will default to if we're not careful as Jesus followers where we will magnify differences that don't matter. And it is one of the greatest threats to unity that we go toe to toe with. And therefore, Paul says, we have got to work at being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one in mind because unity is not uniformity. There's a big difference. Uniformity is everybody's the same, right? We are not all the same. Have you looked around here this morning? We are very different people. Consider music, which is a point of of conflict in a number of, of churches. Because there are people who will tell you, you know there are two kinds of music, right? Two kinds of music in the world, country and western. Or there will be people who say there are two kinds of music, orchestra, symphony. No, there are two kinds of music, rock and roll. No, there are two kinds of music, loud and louder, take your preference. You know, and on it goes, right? But we can have this propensity in our brokenness to take differences that don't matter and to elevate them to be the ultimate thing, and they're divisive. And, and they tear communities of Jesus followers apart. Do we all dress the same? No. Do we all have the same education? No. Do we all have the same income? No. Do we all have the same politics? No. Are we all the same race? No. And on it goes. In fact, the positive side of this is that one of the mysteries of the gospel is the unity that we have through the gospel, through Jesus, what he means to us, what he's done in our lives, is that folks who don't know Jesus and don't have him in their lives should look at us, corporately, the church, and scratch their heads and go, how in the world does that work? Those people are so different. They come from every walk of life, every generation, every race, Every ethnicity, every income level, every education level, they dress differently, they eat different foods, they like different teams. Seattle fan and Cowboy fan coming together in unity, Beaver fan, Duck fan coming together in unity. I'm exaggerating, but you know what I'm getting, right? People, there'll never be unity in those layers. People should look at us as a church family and say, How does that work? But it does. And they're unified. That's the point of what Paul is getting here. Can we unify around a mission to love God, love people, reach people, develop people? Can we unify around a vision of being Jesus followers who extend grace? And the answer is yes. We can and we should and we must. Because we are called to be one-souled. Because that's what's being talked about here. One-minded, having the same love for one another and for Jesus. And the practice of unity means there are things that we don't do and things that we do do, if I can say that. That sounds a little weird. Let's move on. The practice of unity, right? What should we do? What shouldn't we do? Well, let's follow the flow here in the passage. We'll start with what we shouldn't do. We shouldn't do anything out of selfish, selfish ambition or vain conceit. Let's define terms here. Selfish ambition, this is the person who is self-seeking and self-promoting, but really to the point that they enjoy attention and they like to cause divisions. They like to emphasize differences. About 10 years ago, there's a word that we now have that most of us know what this means that didn't even exist 10 years ago. It's the word of trolling, What is trolling as it concerns social media? It is the person who will look to post comments, make statements, outrageous things in order to stir things up, get a reaction, get a response. Do you know anyone like that? Are you like that? Because that's what's being talked about here with selfish. Ambition, and it's, it's so interesting, with, with social media, if we can't hear for just a minute, common sense so often is not common practice, right? People will say things on social media they would never say to someone in person, yet they say them. And doesn't scripture have quite a bit to say about it's not just what you say, but how you say it that also matters? And aren't you supposed to speak to someone rather than speak about them? And one of the amazing things about social media is we have this mechanism for self-expression that we've never had before in human history. But the dark side of that is, one of them, is that anyone can say anything at any time about whatever they like. And so by way of example, you will hear things and some of you have about me, about the preaching team, about our leadership, about you as a church family that you're not sure if they're true or not because anyone can say anything at any time. And yet, just by way of example, and I'm choosing this because so many of us live there with social media, how you live your life with social media, what you say, what you don't say, how you say it, either reflects or erodes the unity that we have as a church because you represent us. When I post something on social media, I'm always a pastor. That's the reality of my role. People think, whether I have an opinion or not, well, that's Pastor Jay. He must be speaking on behalf of the church. But it's not just me as a pastor. It's you as a Jesus follower. What you say, how you say it, when you say it, reflects on us as a church family. So again, we just we gotta weigh all this out and, and be wise. Because there's this propensity in us to seek our own glory, and that's what vain conceit is. The King James Version translates this as vain glory, which I think is is really representative, it means empty glory. And apart from Jesus, if we're left to our own ambitions, what we will do is be self promoting. And by the way, since we're defining terms, glory means, especially biblically, for something to really matter, of great importance, of, of weightiness. And this is really describing the person, person who will seek their own glory at the expense of others. Do you know anybody like that? Are you like that? Am I at times? Because it's an empty significance that we're looking for when we do that and it's a significance that doesn't last. And so therefore, we will default to broken ways of relating to people in order to try to make ourselves matter, in order to have purpose, in order to be valued, in order to not be forgotten, really. There's this series that we've been watching on Netflix and it just came to an end. um, it started out really, really good and as it went into ensuing seasons it got into stuff where we went, hmm? And one of those things that began to surface was this philosophy. And when that first surfaced, we all looked at each other and went, man, that's dark. And this philosophy was this. One of the main characters repeatedly, especially as the seasons went on, would begin to say, because it was kind of a shoot-em-up show where there were you know, gunfights and people dying and stuff, and he would say, we're all destined to die alone and there's no one who's ever gonna come help you. Say, like, oh yeah, great, thanks. Go and be well fed and be blessed and have joy, right? It's, how dark is that? How empty is that? But as we were talking about that as a family, you know, it, it really comes from this desire for our lives to matter. Every single one of us wants our lives to matter to the point that we will, to make ourselves feel better, to have significance, to feel like we matter, we'll do whatever it takes to feed that, even if it comes at the expense of others. And Paul is saying, don't default to that. Because when you have Jesus in your life, he is the one who gives you value. He is the one who gives you significance. And therefore, you begin to become free from having to seek Empty glory at the expense of others that even isn't going to last in the long haul anyway. That no longer feels like a source of oxygen for you. By way of example, what other people think about you? What other people post about you? What other people say about you? The things that you accomplish or don't accomplish in your life, the amount of money you make, the things you have, those things begin to lose their hold on you when you realize and recognize the reality that if you have Jesus, you have significance, you have value, and you no longer have to seek your own glory at the expense of other people. And what happens when a community of people begin to live that way? Not seeking their own glory? But seeking God's glory and the benefit of others, that's distinct. It's a picture of people who will get in trucks and drive three hours not knowing where they're going but knowing I need to go serve and help someone in the name of Jesus Christ and when I find them I'm going to do just that. Because Paul goes on to say this, Rather, this is what we should do. In humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Because once again, if we hit the default button and we go back to our brokenness apart from Jesus... Apart from that which has been redeemed and restored and renewed by having Jesus in our life, then we begin to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to. Romans 12, verse 3 speaks to this. Each of you should not think more highly of yourselves than you should because I have a tendency to think of myself more highly than I should. And so do you, apart from Jesus. And the real litmus test of this, again, comes in relationships. Do you value other people above yourselves? Well, how do you respond when you're ignored, overlooked, marginalized, even wronged? Or to take that even to another level of sophistication, can you legitimately, reasonably authentically celebrate the success of someone else? Rather than envying them, wanting what they have, being jealous of them, can, can you celebrate when God blesses them? Or to take this even a step further, can you truly be on the lookout on how you can serve other people around you? How you can meet their needs instead of exclusively focusing on your needs in the moment? And again, let's clarify terms here. This isn't saying you should be codependent. You don't need to be needed. You don't need to go to the extreme of, well, there's nothing good in me, and you, know, you neglect your own needs, your own self-care. This isn't talking about that. Humility, which is what this is talking about, is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. It's like how Jesus lived. Why can Jesus command this of us? Because he's our example. And he's our empowerment. And this is where we'll go next week when Paul says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. He examples this for us. He empowers us. And at the core of humility, do you know what really is at the core of humility? If we're gonna get down to brass tacks and make this really practical and really applicable, what does humility look like? Humility, as defined by this letter in this passage, is serving others. If you are humble, you will serve others because that's what Jesus did. Because of who you are, because of the Spirit of God moving within you, because I see and get to do life with you and see how you live your lives, I hope we never have a natural disaster like Hurricane Harvey come through our community. I really don't. But we live in a broken world and things like that obviously can happen. But I can tell you this that if that were to happen, I have great confidence in the Spirit of God and in your sensitivity. And love for him that you would be the church. If I'm going to go through a disaster like that, I hope I get to go through it with you. Because you're the real deal. Because you live this as a church family. And you recently lived this very formally as a church family. I mean, this happens all the time, but as a group... About a week ago, we went over to East Gresham Elementary, like so many other churches here in our community that have adopted schools, and we rolled up our sleeves and got dirt under our nails and sawdust in our shoes, and we served. And I think that's something to celebrate. Thank you for listening to sermon audio from Grace Community Church. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net.